Oops. All right. Welcome back. And uh, I got a few announcements. I want to just mention our Real Life Youth Ministry. We have a lock-in Friday, February 12th from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. You can uh, call here, talk to Josh for more information. And then we have a blood drive on Friday, February the 12th from 1 to 6, Red Cross blood drive here. Friday, one, February the 12th, 1 to 6. You call ahead and register. You can call us to get information, but uh, that, that we'd love to have you participate in that. We have our CareNet baby bottles out, still collecting change or bills for CareNet. And you just drop them here when they're filled up. And then just a reminder, this Wednesday night, Kids Club for the Children and Real Life for the Teens going on. And uh, Robin Kilgore just wanted us to let us know that children's ministry still needs volunteers. They need volunteers for Wednesday night. They need volunteers for Sunday morning. They need volunteers for the nursery on Sunday morning, too, as we're moving towards opening the nursery. We're hoping to do that in the, in the near future as people are able to help us with that. All right, we're in a study of the book of John, and uh, we're at uh, the end of chapter 2 into the beginning of uh, chapter 3. I um, kind of cut off early last week on, on just ran over and couldn't get everything in. But one of the things I thought about maybe talking about just for a moment this week as we begin is thinking, why are we here? Why are people listening online? Why do we do this every week? Because this weekly coming together is not about ritual. It's about relationship. Because mere religious ritual, there's no life in that. All right? That, that doesn't, is, is not what gives life. Relationship gives life, right? You can, you can find someone if you want. I mean, you know, sometimes there's these crazy movies about this where somebody kind of, in a sense, almost hires someone to be a boyfriend or a girlfriend or act like a husband or act like a wife to get through a movie. And I've seen one or two of them and they drive me crazy. So I don't watch very many of them. But the whole idea is, and, and, and you guys know in those movies what happens, they always fall in love with each other and then establish a relationship. But in the ritual of just pretending, there's no life in that. There's no joy in that. There's no love in that. It's in the relationship where life and love and joy resides. And so gathering together weekly is not about ritual for us. Coming together each week, it can't be that way. There can be life. There can be vitality in ritual as long as it's an expression of a true and living relationship. Right? So you can hire someone to give you flowers. It doesn't really mean that much. But if someone you love and have a relationship with gives you flowers, it means something. The ritual of giving flowers suddenly takes on meaning because it's done out of love. It's done out of relationship. And God has given us His Word so that we can learn of this relationship that Jesus Christ wants to have with us. That's where the answer is. The Bible is the Word of God. And the, and the Bible points to the Word of God, Jesus. He is the Word. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 1, the Logos, the living embodiment, right? So Scripture contains the very words of God. It reveals to us God's Word, Jesus, who became flesh and dwelled among us. So this living Word dwelled among us, and this living Word that we study reveals to us the truth of this relationship that we need to have. So why are we studying the Gospel of John? I mean, that in a sense I'm answering it, but in a sense I'm saying, you know, is it just so that after however long it takes, you get some sort of certificate that you've accomplished this? No. The Lord 
has not invited us to study the Gospel of John together just so that we become competent students or we have gained knowledge of what the Gospel of John says. The Lord has invited us to this text so that we might become passionate lovers of Jesus. That's the goal. So then why the Gospel of John? Why spend all this time? I don't know how long this is going to last. We'll see. I have no idea. Couldn't we just do it, though, very quickly? Couldn't we just do it in a couple of months, three months maybe, and then move on to something else? Yes, we could. We could if our goal was just to increase our biblical knowledge or to broaden our exposure to theology, systematic theology. We could do that. And if our goal was just to become better students of the Bible, we could move much more quickly through this gospel. That's not our goal. That may happen. We want that to happen. I I want all of us, myself included, to become better acquainted, better students of the gospel of John, to understand better the things that are brought out, even the theology that's explained to us by Jesus. But that's not our goal. Our goal is to get to know a person. That's the reason we're here. That's the point. Experiencing the transforming love of God through the living person of Jesus who is, pre- who is present in us by His own Holy Spirit so that when we come together each week, we are worshiping and glorifying Him. That's why we're teaching, going through together, the Gospel of John. When I say we're teaching, using the we, I'm teaching, but I, I, I say this so much. I am learning at the same time. I learn stuff on Sunday mornings. Um, talking to somebody the other day, saying how sometimes in a sermon, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. Things come to me and I say things. But almost every Sunday, I walk out of this place going, where did that thought come from? Something from the text jumps out and hits me that I did not see. So I'm learning just like you're learning. This is not, this is not the learned one teaching down to the learners. This is all learners learning together. And we are not looking at this book for mere knowledge because knowledge puffs up. We're studying this book as seekers, seekers of the truth. Christians should always be people who passionately seek the truth, even if they don't like where the truth leads them. Because we want the truth. That's what's so important. So we study it as seekers and we allow the truth to change us. Sometimes it's slowly and subtly that it changes us. Sometimes it's dramatic. Sometimes it's very radical in how it changes us. But the truth always changes us. And so I pray for all of us, myself included, that we are willing, even this morning, to allow God to change us. So we're looking at John 2, 23 to 25, the very end of chapter 2, and then verses 1 through 8 in chapter 3. And I'm going to read those, starting verse 23 of John 2. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Verily, verily, I tell you, 
No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So now we're looking at this passage. We're starting. I want you to see something. I want you to see inadequate belief. The first few verses that we just read. I'm not going to reread them here right in front of you. The first few verses in verse 23, it's, it tells us that many people, many people were, were believing. That word means, means it can be shades of belief or shades of trust, but it's a lot of people. So yes, right? The ministry's getting off the ground. All, his, all Jesus' PR, PR guys are, dude, high five. We got tons of people coming. Let's take an offering, right? They're, they're very excited about what's going on. And they saw the signs. But verse 24 is so interesting because it says, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. And what John does here is he does a play on words on the word believe or trust. Because literally you could say, many people trusted Jesus, but Jesus did not trust those many people. Because he knew them. Because he knew them. And so we're learning something here. Verse, verse 25, he didn't need anybody to teach him about mankind because he knew what was in each person. He knew them. In, in, uh, in Jeremiah 17, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. Or in Matthew 9, when Jesus meets the guy, he says, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven, the paralytic. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, see, they said it to themselves. Knowing their thoughts, he says, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? See, Jesus knows people. He knows us very well. And we see this, the truth of this. The heart is deceitful. It sounds, it sounds harsh. It is harsh. But it's true. We see this all the time. We see it in the news. But we see it in our own lives Day after day, making decisions that sometimes, sometimes to get gain something, we shade things. We don't quite tell the whole truth. Why? Because the whole truth would be a problem. Maybe sometimes it's even, and I, I can struggle with this just like anyone else, to tell the whole truth is going to take like 10 minutes. So I just shade it a little bit, it takes one minute, and I'm out. I don't have to spend 10 minutes trying to explain to somebody what just happened or why I did what I do, did or something like that. And so... When we see this, we see this kind of harsh statement, the heart's deceitful, and then we see this statement, Jesus knows every heart, which Jesus knows our thoughts. How does that fact affect you? It can, it can be a truth that you can look at as gloriously good or terribly true. It could be a wonderful thing or it could be an intensely frightening thing. He knows my thoughts. Is this the kind of Jesus you want around you, the one that knows every thought? Is this the kind of Savior you're willing to come to, the one who knows every thought, who knows you better than you know yourself? Can you joyfully worship Jesus as a person who knows more about you than any other person on the whole planet knows? Is this comforting? Is this terrifying? Or is it both? Because Jesus, if he knows what's all in all people, the interesting thing is, in spite of that, 
He loves us. In spite of that, he stands before us, arms open wide, saying, come to me and I will give you life and love. I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But Jesus, I, I know. Come to me. I will give you life and love. He knows our most secret contemplations. He knows the things, the fantasies that our mind can go off. And sometimes we catch ourselves and go, oh, that's, what am I thinking? That's horrible. And yet he's still willing to have anyone who will come to him. It is a gloriously amazing invitation. You don't start relationships that way, do you? You don't start, find somebody you kind of like and you're sort of attracted to and say, let me tell you some of my deepest, darkest secrets. Nope. Nope. Because you know they'd be like, you are crazy. I'll have none of that. You know, it just, it's, and Jesus says, I know it all. You're not going to surprise me. Come to me. I love you. And Jesus doesn't trust them because he understands what's going on here. They're amazed by the signs. And, and, and we've talked about this before. And a little bit later in the book of John, we're going to talk about the purpose of signs as they play out in Scripture. But, but what happens is we're amazed by the big stuff, the booms, the explosions, you know. And, and, and that's why I always think about that. What if I was Jesus? What would I do? I'd be doing this. I'd be like, Pew, you're healed. Pew, you're healed. What'd you say? Did you say something wrong? Pew, you're ashes. I'd just be doing it. Why people would be just like, yeah, we're going to follow him or he will kill us, right? Because that's how I am. <laughs> and I raised five kids. I should not. I'm a dangerous person. <laughs> so what happens here? What happens? Jesus sees that they're enamored with the signs. And it may be a step in the right direction. But believing in a sign does not see the purpose of the sign. Believing in just in the sign, sign chasing is a bad way to be. Because the purpose of the sign is that it always points to something greater and more glorious than the sign itself. And so Jesus, the first part we see is this inadequate belief. The second thing we see is he's going to talk about true belief. And this is, this is in chapter 3. And one through three, right here, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. He said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you're doing if it were not with him. God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I say to you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. All right? So Nicodemus comes. Here's This would be a picture kind of of what... And a Pharisee would look like. They dressed incredibly expensive dress. Um, and, and I think this might be a good time to talk a little bit about what Pharisees are. You know, we hear about it all the people. Nobody, nobody says, oh, there's a Pharisee. And everybody goes, oh, I've never heard of a Pharisee. We've heard of it. But let me get a little bit deeper into what a Pharisee is like. What's actually going on? These Pharisees, um, they are the most religious people in the whole land. Uh, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. It says he's a member of the council. That would be the Sanhedrin. That would be about, it varied in times from 15 to 30 people, sometimes a little more, sometimes, that ran the nation of Israel. They were the ones who were in charge of the nation. Now, they'd lost some of their power because the Romans were in charge of certain things, but the Romans gave them a lot of leeway. So Nicodemus would be a Pharisee. He'd be a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the rulers of the land. He's a Bible scholar. He has a high position. And it says he comes at night. And that's likely because he has much to lose. He's not sure, he's not sure what everybody else is thinking, but he wants to find some stuff out about Jesus. So he comes to him at night 
And, and the idea seems to be that he, that he won't be seen. That's his point. Now, being a Pharisee is the pinnacle of Jewish life. And Pharisee, the word Pharisee means the separated ones. They would call themselves the brotherhood. Uh, by law, no more than 6,000 Jews could be a Pharisee at any given time in Israel or in the world. There would only be 6,000 Pharisees. It was a very difficult thing to get into. Everybody would love to be able to, but it's very, very strict. And you take a pledge. And the pledge basically says, I pledge to spend my whole life, every moment of my life, following every detail of the law, you know, the, the, the Old Testament law, and, and it says the scribal laws. Now, the scribal laws are something that, if you're not familiar with all this stuff, it may be something kind of new to you, but the Jews had the, the Old Testament, that was their Bible, and it had all these laws, 673, whatever it is, 673 laws, something like that. And then they had what they called the Mishnah, the Mishnah was, how do we interpret these laws? And the Mishnah would interpret laws into everyday life and come up with all these examples and try to think of examples. So, and then they had the Talmud. Now, the Talmud had a lot of different things in it, but one of the things it did was it broke down even further from the Mishnah all the rulings of the law. So let me give you an example of what would happen here. Um, because oftentimes it was with good intentions, but good intentions, but the... Uh, we always know this. Laws can be so easily abused. All right? So the idea was every possible situation in life could be covered by a principle in the Old Testament. And the Mishnah was charged with doing that. So uh, an example of this would be God said, keep the Sabbath holy. Right? Do not work on the Sabbath. And so all Jews agreed with that. The question is, what does keep mean? All right? What does work mean? mean. Like, you have to break that down. If you said to somebody, do not work, everybody would have different ideas of what work is, right? Sometimes on Sunday, I mow my lawn. One time somebody said, oh, so you were working on some, pulling that religious thing on me, right? You were working on Sunday. I said, no, I love that. It's exercise. I felt good doing it. It's not work. Work is talking to you. And that's what I think, right? So, so, so what is work? So they have to figure out what work is. What is keep? we got to figure out what keep is. So in the Mishnah, there are 24 long chapters on the Sabbath. Just illustrations, principles, all sorts of different ideas. And so what, they, what would they do? They say, well, what does work mean? What does the word keep mean? Defining it so that we can list what may and may not be done. Right. So here's one. Here's one from one of the 24 chapters. You may not tie a knot on Sunday, on Saturday, the Sabbath. You may not tie a knot on Sabbath. Why? Because tying a knot with both hands is work. And this, here's the interesting thing. If you could tie your knot with one hand, it's okay. Because two hands is work. One hand's not work. I don't know why they had a reason, but I don't know why. So then, well, there's a whole lot of different knots. Okay, a sailor's knot. Anything a sailor would tie. That's work. You may not do it on the Sabbath. Anything a camel driver would tie, that's work. You can't, you can't do that on the Sabbath. And so they had all these different things, all these knots you couldn't tie, and all these examples. So then they said, okay, well, so wait a minute. Wait a minute. And this is what it's all about. Suppose a woman gets a rip right here on the Sabbath. Can she sew it and tie it? Because now we're talking about modesty. Yes, you can tie it, 
Okay, so you guys, if something's immodest, you can take care of it on, on the Sabbath. But also, modesty, a woman can tie up her girdle. So then there's one. This is an actual one. Can you tie a knot around a bucket to lower into a well because you're thirsty? You need water. No, you cannot. But then they figured out, but if I tie a woman's girdle to the bucket and tie the girdle to the rope, you're allowed to tie girdles so I can lower the bucket and get water. You see what happens? What happens with rules? There's always a way around it. How far can you go from your house on a Sabbath? And the distance was basically a thousand yards was the furthest you could go. One step more is work. So then, what's a house? Right? This is the way people found. Well, a house is a place, and they would define, a house is a place where you store food to live. A house is a place where you can deny entrance or exit because it's yours. And being able to deny entrance or exit makes it yours. So anything past your house, a thousand yards, that's as far as you can go. Anything a thousand yards from where you store food. And so then Jews started figuring out, if I go about a thousand yards to my neighbor's house the day before Sabbath, and I stick a day's worth of food in his house, his house is now my house. We're sharing it now because I'm storing food. So now from my house, I can go a thousand yards to my neighbor's house and another thousand yards because I still haven't got left my house. If, if, if tying a rope across, across a road a thousand yards from my house at least symbolically, denies entrance or exit. Now the whole area is my house. So I can go to the rope and then go another thousand yards. You see what happens? This, here we go, this is religion. This is religion. Religion makes rules and people figure out ways to circumvent the rules because we're obeying it in, by the letter, not by the spirit. And so all of this would just, it explodes. If you ever want to read something that will put you to sleep so fast, just look up the rules. Just on Sabbath, how much food can I carry? There's a list, three pages long. A fig, a, 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 enough for one swallow of milk, like that. What if I have a crutch? Because I'm lame. I'm carrying a crutch. It had rules on that. What if I have dentures? That's one that's in there. How much do your dentures weigh? What if I have a wooden leg? And we know there are men who had to take their wooden leg off on the Sabbath if they wanted to go anywhere because the wooden leg weighed too much and it was worse. See, this is what happens with Ruth. This is what's coming to Jesus in the form of Nicodemus, this rule-keeping. Pharisees were people who promised to obey every rule every moment of their whole life. So one of the key things to be a Pharisee is you have to be rich because it's expensive to always wear the right clothes. It's expensive to always do the right thing. It's expensive. And so Pharisees, one of the things is, is they were very rich. Of course, for the Jews, they thought that was normal because richness is a sign that God favors you. So of course the Pharisees are all rich. And so we have, now we have Nicodemus. So this is a little bit of what the Pharisees are like. When you see, a, you understand, they're incredible rule keepers. Some of them mean it, they have a good heart about it, but it's nothing but keeping rules. And we think it's ridiculous. But we can do it. We can do it, right? How many different ways do we find to circumvent rules? 
many different ways do we find to think that what we're doing is earning favor with God. And so here we have this man, Nicodemus. He has biblical knowledge. He's, in, he's an intellectual. He has power. He has authority. He has respect in the community. He's wise. He's rich, right? He is revered by everyone. He's got it all together. In the eyes of everyone in, 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 in Israel, this is the exemplar. This is one of the top. Follow him, kids. He's somebody. Now, he seems to be open and teachable. This is a really good thing because he is causing this, this uh, conversation to happen. Because he says things like in uh, verse 2, he says, Rabbi, we know. He says, I'm, I, I, there's some people here that we've talked. We know that you are a teacher. You're a rabbi. That's a, uh, that's a term of honor. He says, you're a teacher who's come from God. You, you, have some sort of, you have some sort of blessing, some sort of authority that has come from God. I'm willing to admit that. He says, for no one could perform the signs, okay? The, you have the ability at times to do something that seems supernatural to us. So no one has a, You're something special. I'm willing to admit that. He's open. He's teachable. He says that. And look what Jesus says. It's like Jesus interrupts him. He's not even done telling Jesus what a great guy he is. And Jesus replied, very truly... Or often you'll see, truly, truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. All right? So this, this very truly or truly, truly is trying to get across a Greek thought that's, that's key for this. It's, it's repeating something for significant emphasis. When it, literally, he's saying the word two times. So it's like, listen to me. It's grabbing you know, I, when my kids were little, sometimes I knew I could tell them, I want you to do this. I'm going to go to, you know, I'm going to work. I'm, I, want you to do this. I want this done before I come home. Okay, dad, you know, and they'd be running off playing or something like that. And I would think, you know what? That kid has forgotten by now, five seconds later, what I just told him. So I get back with them and, and, I, and I tell you, I would do this sometimes, whether I'm telling them to do something or asking them for forgiveness. I always try to get on their level so that we're eye to eye. It's not up and down. And I just, I would say, Derek, look, I'm telling you, dude, I want this done before I get home. Right? This is important. Are you with me? This is important. And he used to tell me, he says, he always knew if I started attaching important two times, he knew he had to do it. If, if I said important twice, he knew he had to do it. And Jesus is saying, this is important. This is important. Listen to me. You say I'm a teacher? You say I'm come from God? All right, I'm going to tell you something then. And he says to him, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. You see, Jesus is different from every religious leader that's ever lived. Every religious teacher that's ever lived has said, here's the way you're supposed to go. Follow these rules. You know, this is the way to, you know, God. This is the way to nirvana. This is the way, this is the way to become, you know, encompassed in the, the, the great one. It's all these different things. But it's always like you've got to follow these rules. And Jesus says, the only way to the kingdom of God is being born again. Because Jesus is telling him, saying, look, you're saying I'm a great teacher. It's, that's, it's not the answer. It's not the rules. You have, to be, you have to have a new beginning. You have to be completely redone. You have to be transformed. Only born again is good enough. Now, this must have floored Nicodemus. There's a couple of reasons, but the big reason is, this amazing statement, um, is that Jesus has blindsided him with something that he never dreamed they'd be talking about. You know, you think about maybe times in your life where you've been blindsided. 
where something has hit you, something has happened, something is so, so out of the blue that even if it, maybe it hurts, maybe it doesn't hurt, but it stuns you. Uh, one time, I told before we'd, we would take groups uh, skiing, I'd get these groups and take them skiing and, and teach people how to ski and all that kind of stuff. And one time, my wife and I, we took a group and we were with some friends too. So we were, we were uh, skiing and, and it wasn't a particularly hard slope, but it had some difficult sections. And so we skied down to kind of the edge of the slope. And you know how, I don't know if you've ever done this, but if you ski a long slope, you stop occasionally. You stop, catch your breath. You stop and say, did you see that? Something like that. So you stop and we're looking down the steep part and you're going, oh, look at that. Oh, okay. Like that. And this, this kid who came with us, um, he's coming down. He's flying. And his, his, his idea is, I'm just going to come up and I'm going to, like a hockey stop, and I'm going to spray all eight of them with snow. This is, and, 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 you know, when you're 17, that's a great idea. Right? The problem is, there's this little ridge running about 10 feet in front of us. And he has not even seen it. And so just as he's getting into that hockey stop, the ridge catches the edge of his skis and just throws him forward. He comes flying like a missile. And my wife is standing there talking to somebody, and he cleans her right at the ankles. Just boom, like that. And she flips all the way around and lands on her back. Skis everywhere, hat, uh, you know, poles. It's a yard sale, total yard sale. And, And she's laying there, and you can just tell she's going... I have no clue what just happened to me. I was talking. Now I'm on my back. And I, and I you know, I skated over. I said, honey, are you okay? And she says, yeah, yeah, I think I'm okay. What happened? And I said, it was great. <laughs> Once I knew she was okay, you know, it's, you know, you know, that is when it's okay, it's okay to laugh. I'm like, that was crazy. I wish I had. You just boom and you do and your skis went pew and you went boom. You I heard it all, you know. And it took her a minute or two just to figure out what was going on. What happened? And we get up, and she goes, how did that happen? And I said, it was Davey. He's such a dope. He thought it was a great idea. You know, she was blindsided, and, and what it did was it stunned. I mean, it was just like this, this, I don't know what's going on. If you've ever had something like, maybe you've been in a car crash you didn't see coming. And you, your brain has to take a few moments to process what just happened because you kind of go into a little bit of shock. Nicodemus, I'm serious, he has been blindsided in something he's never, he never saw it coming. This is huge for him. Firstly, because he hadn't asked a question yet. And Jesus basically just says, let's cut to the chase here and just interrupts him. And secondly, because of this, every Jew basically believed because they were born a Jew, they were getting into the kingdom of God. That wasn't even something that was questioned. Now, sure, some of the really bad ones might might not get in. But every Jew who, who's born a Jew, it's like a free ticket. You, you're in. You know, you got your golden ticket. You got it. It's no problem. You're in. And so Jesus stops him, interrupts him, and just says, oh, and by the way, everything you've ever believed is not true. Imagine that. Imagine that. So Nicodemus, I mean, because he's one of the elite, this is such a foregone conclusion to him. This is not, not something that ever entered his mind. He would have never thought that. And Jesus is saying, look, Nicodemus, I understand you got it all together. Your accomplishments, though, they add up to zero. You need a total reset. You need a restart. You need a do-over. You need the new birth. He uses the word unless in verse 3. He used it also in verse 5. It's an absolute terms. Absolute term. 
It's like saying, unless there's rain, there will be no crops, right? Unless there's air, there will be no fire. Unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. You will not be a Christian. And this is one of those things, again, this sounds kind of harsh, but you know, this is incredibly good news. Think about this. Here's the deal. The new birth is an act of God. Here's Nicodemus. He is the goody two-shoes to beat all goody two-shoes, right? He's the curve buster in your class. He's the person who always gets the right answer. He's the one everybody's like, you're killing us. He's at the top. He's wise. He's humble. He's a pillar of the community. He's rich. He's religious. He's no better off than you are in the eyes of God. No better off than I am in the eyes of God. Because the new birth is an act of God in which His Holy Spirit comes in. His life, His power is implanted in your heart so you're transformed. Anybody can have it. That's crazy good news. That's crazy good news. So right away, you know, he's been stunned. And so he's struggling now. He's trying to think. He's trying to think what he's going to say to this guy who seems to be totally off the wall. And he, so he's, he asks the obvious. I, I think he almost asks this just to give himself a break to think a little more. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter the second time into their mother's womb to be born. He's taking it so absolutely literally that it's almost a joke. Because what Jesus is saying is too controversial for him to comprehend. Imagine if something you had believed your whole life, you suddenly realized was not true. My dad, um, my dad grew up in Donaldsonville, Georgia. Deep south, small town, poor farmer, Georgia. And then he, he went and he, he went to school and grad school and then he, he was in the Air Force and he was working at an Air Force base with a part of the uh, um, special operations before it was them. But, and um, he told me one time, he said, there was these two black sergeants in this office. He says, I was a lieutenant. He said, the captain was not the sharpest guy I'd ever met. The major was always gone. And he said, the lieutenant colonel in charge, he said, I think he had a drinking problem. He just, was, he was, he just never was quite there. And then one year, this unit won an award for the most well-run unit in the Air Force. And they pinned the medal on the lieutenant colonel. And they pinned the medal on the major and on the captain. And they gave something, my dad got something to forget, and then these two black sergeants got a certificate of appreciation. And my dad came home, and he told my mom, his wife, this was in the mid-50s, everything I've ever believed about black people is wrong. Those two men ran that whole unit because the officers, he said, I was new. I didn't have a clue what's going on. The other ones were non-existent. And he said, everything people have told me since I was a little kid, it's all wrong. He was blindsided. He was floored. Something that you've believed your whole life gets ripped out from underneath you. And he was saying, I can't, I can't deny it. I watched it happen for a year. I watched them run it. I'm wrong. Jesus is asking Nicodemus to make that step. 
He's telling them what you've believed your whole life. It's not right. And so Nicodemus is pushing back because it's hard to deal with something that alters your life. So Nicodemus pushes back, says, oh, Jesus, really? I mean, what, what are you saying? So Jesus says, verily, truly, 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 this is important. This is important. I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. Now we get a little bit of Jesus getting in his face, right? Now we get a little bit of Jesus saying, dude, come on. A bit of a rebuke. He has that double emphasis, and he says the water and the Spirit, this, this idea of cleansing, this idea of a new heart. In Ezekiel 36, 25, it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. This is a cleansing. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. This is a new birth. And put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, do you not know that passage? You're an expert. All Pharisees had the whole Old Testament memorized. It was just part of the deal. He goes, you don't know this This is easy stuff. You should know this passage. And there's a bunch of others that are saying the same thing, pointing in the same way. But Jesus is even more upset. There's something fundamental that Nicodemus has ignored that he doesn't get, a fundamental fact. And that's in verse 6. He says, flesh gives, bring it back up, that flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. What is that? What is he talking about there? He's talking about, he's looking back, all the way back to Adam, Adam and Eve, at in the garden and the failure there that brought this curse so that people now, people on their own, cannot do enough to be good for God. It can't, they cannot do it. Flesh gives birth to flesh. This terrible condition continues to this day. Sinful humans are dead in their sins and they can't make themselves alive. Spiritual life comes from the Spirit, from Adam. Remember God told him, the day you eat this, you'll surely die. That is this idea of dying spiritually and also dying. The physical dying process has started in your life now. This is all mankind. And Nicodemus should know this. This is basic. To beat death, to be renewed, requires a new life. The restoration of spiritual life requires a new birth. And Jesus is rebuking Nicodemus for losing sight of this. I want you to know Jesus is rebuking us that we can lose sight of this. We can lose sight of who we really are and think we're better than we are. We can lose sight of what Jesus has done for us and we can think that we've done some of it. When the Israelites were tested in the wilderness, each test, um, you know, they did so good, not so good on some and okay on others. But Moses and God speaking through Moses told them, there's a test coming. You're, you're, You're never, you're not gonna pass it. Oh, we will. They said, we will. We will worship the Lord. We will give glory to God. He said, no, you're not. You're gonna enter into this new land you enter a new land where people, people have already planted grapevines. People have already planted fig trees and olive trees and they've built stuff. And you're going you're gonna to come into this new land and you're going to get these, new, these grapevines, not new. They've been there for years. And, these, and you're going to pick olives from olive trees. You're going to pick figs from fig trees. And these grapevines take six or seven years to come to fruition and bear grapes. You're going to be able to pick grapes right away. It's going to be given to you. And he says, and you know what you're going to do? You're going to go, huh? Look what my hands have done. Look what I have done. You're going to take credit for what I did for you. That's what Nicodemus has lost sight of, and that's what we're still doing today. 
It's interesting, in verse 2, Nicodemus says, we, we plural, we know you're sent from God. And Jesus answers in the singular, you must be born again. In verse 5, he says, you, singular, you must be born again. What is he saying? This isn't a group thing, Nicodemus. This is a you thing. This is an individual thing. This is up to you. You have to make this decision. But then in verse 7, he says, you should not be surprised at me saying, you, plural, must be born again. What is he doing now? He's saying, hey, the whole Sanhedrin, you need to be born again. The whole nation of Israel, you need to be born again. You don't get something for the free just because you're born here. You must be born again. All the religious Jews in the whole world need to be born again. All the people in the world need to be born again. Jesus is making this incredible claim. So we have inadequate belief, true belief, and now a sign of the new birth. And he says, for where the wind blows, where it pleases, you hear it sounds, you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. It's like this, the wind, like the Spirit, is not visible. We see the effects of the wind. We see it all the time, so we know it's there. But if if somebody says to you, it's a really windy day, and you're standing there going, I don't feel anything. My... I was going to say my hair's not must, but that doesn't apply. Um, the, the leaves aren't blowing. I don't see any sign of this windy day you're talking about. I'm not going to believe it. You know, I, I used to work. I worked quite a few years with teenagers and some at-risk youth and stuff like that. And, and uh, one of the things that always worried me is I talking to somebody and they say, oh, yeah, I, I'm a Christian. I, 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 my mom told me I did it. I don't quite remember it, but my mom told me. Or I walked an aisle. Or I signed a card. I went through confirmation. And what would worry me is because every one of us, we have to own our faith. It's not something that's handed down to us. We have to own it. So in working with teenagers, I was constantly telling them, you got to own your faith. It's your faith. It's not your parents' faith. you got to own your faith. Because if there's nothing happening in your life, if you have no desire to grow, if you have no desire to live for Jesus, the Spirit is moving, and if, you're not, if it's not happening at some point in your life, you're missing something. There's something here that's dangerous. Because I, I, I almost would like to say, so how is it possible that the omnipotent power of God has come into your life and your hair didn't even get messy? Jesus tells us later the Holy Spirit will convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. That's part of His job. The Spirit is going to come, and the Spirit's going to shake us. That's part of His job. And the problem is, are you being shook? Are you being convicted? He pushes us. And this is the key. The Holy Spirit convicts us of things and pushes us towards repentance. He pushes us towards forgiveness. You will find in times in your life that you will be feeling convicted or accused. And sometimes that won't be, it might be your nature, it might be Satan. And it will always tell you how terrible you are. It will always tell you you're a loser it will always tell you you're a terrible person. You should hate yourself. Because that's what's saying. So you can tell who it is that's blowing, that's moving, by where it's pointing you. The Spirit always pushes you towards repentance, towards forgiveness. Evil always pushes you towards hate and doubt. That's where it's going to go. And so the Spirit will try to change you, to grow you. We talk about the sign of the new birth. It's the Spirit working in your life, the wind blowing. The sign of life is growth. 
If there's dishonesty in your life, the Spirit pushes you towards integrity. If there's cowardice and fear, the Spirit starts bringing and laying peace at your feet. You know, we talk about the fruit of the Spirit. What does the Spirit bring? Peace. If you're struggling at times with anxiety and depression, the Spirit wants to bring joy into your life. Selfishness or self-protection. The Spirit wants to bring love and love for others into your life. Pride and being self-centered, the Spirit brings humility into your life. If you're struggling with anger issues, the Spirit wants to bring self-control into your life. Because he's moving. God is light, the Bible tells us, and light exposes darkness. Now, I'm not asking you if you stop sinning. I'm asking you if you're even moving. Is your hair being rustled? Do you even try? Do you even want to try? Does it bother you? We should always be bothered by lack of growth. Because growth is a sign of life. Satan wants you to be comfortable and uncaring. You're great in that as far as he's concerned because you're worthless. And so we have Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus in the night. He realizes he has a lot to lose. But God works in him. We see at the end of the book, he's changed. He sees Jesus for who he is. He gets his body and when Jesus dies and gives him a royal burial, When Jesus dies, everyone hides because being a follower of Jesus at that point in time could easily mean death. And Nicodemus risks his life. He risks his reputation. He risks his money and claims the body of Jesus because he says, this king is more important to me than my life, more important to me than my reputation, more important to me than anything I ever have. He is, he sees Jesus for who he is. When we really begin to see Jesus, he tells us, you're my beloved child. I know you inside out. I know your struggles. I still love you without any reservations. It goes way beyond changing. You know, it goes way beyond a self-help book, learning how to stop a certain behavior, working on having a better attitude. When we see Jesus working in our life, change comes from the inside out. Probably one of the greatest um, um, movies, a great example of the new birth is a great theological movie that I love called Muppet Christmas Carol. And yeah, yeah, you pick your theological movies, I'll pick mine, all right? This is the way it is, all right? But think about this. Think about this with Scrooge. What does it mean to be reborn? The morning after, same eyes, looking through the same window, on the same street, in the same town. And yet, everything's different. New perspectives, new motives, new governing principles in his life. Jesus is telling us that's what the Holy Spirit does. He changes us. We have the same eyes. We look out the same window, same street, same town. Everything's the same, Not just not me. I'm changed. And like I said earlier, sometimes it happens radically, and, and, and sometimes it happens very slowly and subtly. But it is growth, and it is movement, and he calls us to be that, to have a new governing principle in our life based around our Savior, Jesus Christ, and what He's done for us. And it starts with us accepting Him. It starts with us admitting we're a sinner, need a Savior. He he meets the qualifications for a Savior, accepting Him. And then it it continues with us continually trying to see Jesus, remember what He's done. I love that we even uh, sang a little bit this morning. I'm wrapping up here. We sang a little bit 
about, you know, understanding what he's done for me and how that changes and talking to ourselves. I, I, I wrote it down and then I forgot, so bear with me. Yes, I will, I will sing out. I will remind my soul. I will remind myself of all you've done. I am yours. We sang that. That's, that's an incredibly biblical idea. Shot through the Psalms is David saying, why are you downcast, O my soul? Speaking to himself, the psalmist, different psalmists, speaking to themselves and then reminding. It says, remember, remember, remember. Reminding themselves, focusing our eyes back on Jesus. We saw this in chapter 1 with John the Baptist. And what did he do? He says, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. I must, he must increase, I must decrease. John got it right. Took his eyes off of himself and focused solely on Jesus. He's the important one. And when we do that, the spirit works, the wind blows, our hair gets messy, our lives get changed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that it has the power that we need through the Holy Spirit to change, that we can try as hard as we want and just continually fail. But through you, Lord, we find the joy, the peace, the purpose, the life we were made for. Give us glimpses of that every day, Lord. Help us to see you working so that it encourages us and empowers us to follow hard after you. We thank you for our Rabbi Jesus who has been our, become our Savior. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Again, thanks for coming and being a part of this. You know, I, I know I say this every week, but it's because it's, it's the truth, and, it, and, it, and it, I mean it. Uh, I'm very thankful for everyone who comes, for people who come online, for people who support us, for people, all these different things. It, I'm just very thankful. Uh, I know right now there are a lot of churches that are just hurting terribly, and churches that are closing. You know, I'm in a, this network, and we hear about this one, the, the, those kind of things happening, and God is uh, working and using us, and, and we're thriving in, in, in some ways that's just amazing to see in the midst of all of this um, virus and everything else that's going on. So thank you for coming. God bless you, and you are dismissed.